Good morning, everybody. It's great to see you today. Do you have your Bible? Yeah? Romans chapter 11 is where you need to turn. If you don't have a Bible, uh, grab one from the pew rack right in front of you so you can follow along, engage God's Word. If you don't have a Bible at all, take that one home with you and consider it our gift to you. We want you to have God's Word. We want you to read God's Word, and we want you to know God's Word. It's the bread that we live on. Last week in Romans, we saw Paul continue to address the questions that were raised because of the current demographic of the church. What do we do with the fact that Israel, by and large, has rejected Jesus as the Messiah, has opposed the gospel of salvation by grace through faith in him alone, and finds itself consequently outside now of the family of God? Hasn't God made certain saving promises to Israel? Has he failed to fulfill those promises to Israel? Can he be trusted? Is he faithful? What about the promises he's made to us? Can we trust him to fulfill the promises he's made to us? All of these things raise questions about the character of God that Paul is trying to address. Last week we saw that Paul argued that God can be trusted because he does keep his promises. He has not fully and finally rejected Israel. In fact, Paul himself is an example of this. Paul would trace his lineage back to Abraham. Paul was more Jewish than most Jewish people, and God had rescued him. God is keeping his promises to Israel through Paul. He's also keeping his promises to save those he has chosen. God has chosen a people for himself, and he is bringing them to salvation. And even if most or nearly all of the Jews have turned away from God, he is not done with them. In fact, even now he is preserving for himself a remnant from Israel. We saw that from the story of Elijah. Elijah thought he was the last one. He thought he was the only one left faithful to God. And God says, oh, Elijah, you couldn't be more wrong. I've kept 7,000 men for myself who haven't bowed the knee to the Baal. And, and Paul tells us it's the same way today. And so can God be trusted? Absolutely he can be trusted. Has he failed on his promises? No way. He is fulfilling his promise to Israel, and he will fulfill it in the days to come. This week, we're going to see a similar theme that we've been studying now for quite some time, as Paul essentially sums up everything that he has shown us since chapter 9, verse 30, about the situation of Israel and about the faithfulness of God. We won't necessarily learn anything new today. Um, we won't learn anything new today, but we'll be reminded uh, of some old truths, and some old truths will be reinforced as we once again see the faithfulness of God, and as we move on to the next stage of Paul's argument, really what he's going to get into in the next few weeks is, is what about Israel in the days to come? Well, what's going to happen toward the end with the nation of Israel? And you're going to see some incredible things from God's word. But today we're going to look at, at verse uh, 7 to 10. I want to start reading, though, in chapter 11, verse 1, so that you get the context. This is what God's word says in Romans chapter 11. I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be, for I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they, have, they are seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In the same way, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. But if, by, if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. What then? What Israel is seeking 
it has not obtained. But those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Just as it is written, God gave them, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not and ears to hear not, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution among them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. Let's pray together. God, we're so thankful for your word today as we come together. We're so thankful that right standing before you sin was made to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God, I thank you that we can have a right standing before you, not based on our works, not based on our righteousness, not based on our performance, but based on Christ, his work and his performance, and based on your grace and your gift that we do not deserve. God, I pray that we will earnestly seek a right standing before you, and I pray that we will not mistake that Israel made. That we will not seek that right standing through works, but we will seek it by faith, by grace. God, I pray that you guard our hearts, especially those of us who are here week in and week out, those of us who serve in the church, those of us who who go on mission trips, those of us who teach in Sunday school, those of us who work in the nursery. God, I pray that you guard our hearts, that we don't go down the road of works that leads to destruction, that we will rest our entire weight on you and the gift that you have provided in your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. So Paul starts out this section in verse 7 with this question. He says, what then? And this is a common question in Romans, a common question that Paul often asks as he is making transition, as he's concluding one thought and summarizing the teachings of a particular section and getting ready to move on to another section, he'll say, what then? And it's almost as if he stands back and says, what what should we say about all this? All of this that we've been taught, what should we say about all of it? And so the question becomes in this text, how far back does that question go here? Is Paul going to summarize, is he going to conclude what he's taught us just so far in chapter 11, or does it reach back even further than that? And I told you earlier that I think it seems best to see this reaching back all the way to chapter 9, verse 30. That basically what Paul is doing in chapter 11, verse 7, is he's summarizing everything he's taught us between chapter 9, verse 30, and chapter 11, verse 6. It reaches way back, and I think you'll see that as we move on in the text, because he's going to say some things in these few verses that are almost exactly what he said way back then. In fact, look where he starts. He says, what then? What Israel is seeking, it has not obtained. This is a big part of why I think it goes back to chapter 9, verse 30. In fact, turn there with me, and you'll see it yourself. Chapter 9, verse 30. Remember, Paul says in chapter 11, what Israel is seeking, it has not obtained. And listen to his words in chapter 9, verse 30. What shall we say then? Does that sound familiar? What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. 
but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. Just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a block of offense. And he who believes in him will not be disappointed. So the question is, what exactly was Israel seeking? What was Israel seeking that they failed to find? Well, that answer is pretty simple. They were seeking a right standing before God. And it's not as if they were just um, sort of seeking this. It wasn't as if they were just lightheartedly seeking this right standing before God. No, some translations even say in chapter 11, verse 7, they were earnestly seeking. What they were earnestly seeking after, it's a, it's a sweaty word that's used there. It's a word of great effort. It's a, it's a word of great um, uh, intensity that they were earnestly seeking after this thing. One scholar said this search was no perfunctory effort, but it was serious and sustained. They were seeking after a right standing with God with everything they had. And so that raises the question, exactly how were they seeking this right standing before God? If what they, have seek, they were seeking, they have not obtained, they were seeking a right standing with God, how were they seeking that right standing? Well, if we go back to uh, chapter 10, verses 1 to 4, we will see even more clearly that they were seeking this right standing with God by works of the law. Go back to chapter 10, verse 1. It says, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them, that is Israel, is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God. They're earnestly seeking after God. They have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So Israel was seeking a right standing with God, but they were seeking that right standing with God by works of the law. And because they were seeking that right standing through works of the law or the wrong way, they failed to obtain it. The scholar that talked about the search says this search was no perfunctory effort, but serious and sustained. But for all that Israel did, they did not obtain what they sought. They put in some serious effort but they did not obtain what they were seeking. And this is scary for me as a pastor of this church because I fear that there are many people in the church today who are in the same situation as Israel was. They are earnest, maybe you are earnestly seeking after a right standing with God, but you are seeking it in the wrong way. You are seeking it through your own good works, through your own self-righteousness, and I'm telling you, if you are seeking a right standing with God through works of the law, you will not obtain a right standing with God. There is only one way to obtain a right standing with God, and it's through faith in Jesus Christ, not by works of the law. One scholar said this, one of the saddest commentaries of history is that so many people place their trust in the very thing that damns them. All false religions, pagan, cultic, unbiblical Christianity, and every other kind present counterfeit means of salvation. The more their adherents feed on the falsehoods, the more immune they become to the true gospel of Jesus Christ, the living bread of life. So I've got two questions for you today. Number one, what are you pursuing? What is it that you are earnestly seeking after? Are you earnestly pursuing and seeking after fleshly satisfaction and fulfillment? 
Are you pursuing all that this world has to offer? I have no doubt that there are people in this room today who are in that situation. And we will talk uh, to you and about you a little more later on in the sermon. But I think there are other people who are not pursuing fleshly satisfaction and indulgence in this world. But people who are in this place today are really seeking after a right standing with God. What are you seeking after? Are you seeking after a right standing with God? And the follow-up question is, how are you seeking after that? What are you doing to pursue that right standing with God? How are you pursuing it? Are you pursuing it by your own works? Are you trusting in your own effort? Are you depending on your performance? Are you compiling a resume to present to God on that last day to say, these are all the things that I've done, God? You know, in, in some evangelism strategies, we, we ask people this question, suppose you were to stand before God today and he were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven? What do you suppose you would say? It's a pretty good question. Are you going to pull out your resume at that point and say, here's why you should let me into your heaven? I played the drums for 20 years in the church. I worked in the nursery three out of four Sundays. I taught children's vacation Bible school. I preached. I went on mission trips. I gave a lot of money. Are you going to pull out your resume and talk about your works? Are you pursuing this right standing with God by works, or are you pursuing it by faith, trusting in the finished work of Christ, depending on the grace of God? If he were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven, would you say, you should have. You should have let me into your heaven. Christ died for sinners like me. He took my place, and you poured out your wrath on your son instead of me. I've got nothing to claim except Jesus and him crucified. I've got no song to sing except Jesus dying on the cross for my sins and rising again victorious. I've got no leg to stand on in judgment except for Christ, except for grace that is undeserved. What are you pursuing and how are you pursuing it? It seems to be the crux of all of this. He says, what Israel was seeking, it has not obtained. So we see the majority of Israel on the one hand failing to obtain what it was earnestly seeking because it was seeking it all wrong. And then on the other hand, we have folks who were chosen who have obtained it. Read on in verse 7. What then, Israel, uh, what then, what Israel is seeking, it has not obtained, but those who were chosen obtained it. Those who were chosen obtained Israel is seeking it, but they have not obtained it because they were seeking it the wrong way. But there's another group, the chosen ones who have obtained it. They're a group of people who have obtained righteous standing before God. And I believe from the text that this group includes two kinds of people. I think this group of chosen people who have obtained a righteous standing before God includes two types of people. Gentiles, read back in chapter 9, verse 30. It says, what shall we say then, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. So this group of chosen ones who have obtained the righteousness of God includes some Gentiles, but maybe more importantly for the context, it includes this Jewish remnant. Go back to chapter 11, verse 5. In the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice, a remnant even of Israel, according to God's gracious choice. But if it is by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. So this chosen group who have obtained righteous standing before God include some people from Gentile background, 
and some of the Jewish remnant. But this group is one group and have come to be part of the family of God in the exact same way. Whether they're from a Gentile background or a Jewish background, they've come to be part of the family of God in the exact same way. And that is through faith in Jesus Christ. They have obtained a righteous standing before God by faith in Jesus Christ. Look at chapter 10, verse 9. Chapter 10, verse 9 says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. You catch that? These chosen ones who are part of the family of God, whether they're Jewish or Gentile, have become part of the family of God because they've called on the name of the Lord Jesus to save them. So, on the one hand, we've got this group, the majority of Israel, who have not obtained what they were seeking. And we've got another group of chosen ones who have obtained a right standing before God. And it's happened by faith in Jesus Christ. And then look what he says next. This is absolutely killer. He says, What Israel is seeking it has not obtained, but those who were chosen did obtain it, and the rest were hardened. So you've got the remnant, the faithful ones, the chosen ones, the ones who have obtained a righteous standing before God, and then you've got the rest, the chosen ones, the faithful ones, have a right standing with God on the one hand, and the busy, self-righteous, hardened ones on the other hand. The rest were hardened, it says. That's chilling, isn't it? They didn't obtain what they were seeking. Some did, the chosen ones did, but the rest were hardened. The text goes on to make clear that God is the one who does the hardening here. By whom were they hardened? They're hardened by God. This is not an easy thing for us to understand. It's not an easy thing for us to swallow. And Paul is going to take the rest of the text to defend that statement by using quotations from the Old Testament. The word that's used here for hardened is different from the word that's used back in chapter 9. Go there with me. Chapter 9, verse 18. Actually, start in verse 14, where God says, What shall we say then? There's no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up, to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. And then look at verse 18. So then he has mercy on whom he has on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. He has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. Now the word in chapter 11 for hardened is different from the word here. It's not the exact same verb, but it carries the same idea. It means uh, to become callous. Um, Bailey, where's Bailey? You've got some awesome calluses, don't you? On your fingers as a guitar player? Yeah. How did you get those? From playing a lot, right? So if I were to pick up your guitar and play through the service along with you, my fingers would hurt. 
my fingers might even bleed. But because you've been doing it for so long, your fingers have become hardened over time, right, and can withstand the pain. You don't feel the pain anymore, right? That's the idea of what's going on here in the hardening. The other picture is uh, when you break a bone, Preston, when you break a bone, that bone heals, and the place that is healed is actually harder than all the rest of the bone. Am I right about this, doctor? The place that heals is even harder than the rest of the bone, and that's what's going on here in this text. In other words, there's some kind of crisis, there's some kind of pain, and what's going on here is he says the rest were hardened. They became insensitive over time. They became hardened, more hard than anything else around. He says the rest were hardened. Many scholars believe that the hardening that Paul is talking about here is a judicial hardening. Basically, that the hardening done by God is in response to the faithlessness of the people. Let me read what a scholar says about it. Maybe you'll understand it better. He says, the people of Israel were blind because God had made them blind. Their blindness was punishment for their sin. They did not want to see the things of God, so, as he has done throughout redemptive history, he abandoned them to that sinful desire. That should make some sense because we read about that in chapter 1, right? God gave them over. Part of what it looks like for the wrath of God to be revealed in the present tense is he gives people over to the desires of their flesh. And maybe it's a similar thing that's going on here. They didn't want to hear about righteousness that comes by faith. They didn't want to hear about grace. They wanted to live according to works. And so God gave them over to it. He didn't allow, he allowed them not to see it anymore. He closed their eyes. Another scholar says it this way, disobedience, disobedience never leaves a person in the same condition. Obedience draws a believer into an increasingly intimate relationship with the Lord. But disobedience separates and hardens a person. The tragic aspect of hardening is that disobedient people are increasingly unable to grasp the serious nature of their spiritual apostasy. You catch what he's saying there? He says the more you're obedient to God, the closer he draws you to himself. The more you follow him, the more you see him. The more you see him, the more you love him. The more you love him, the more you see him. That's the upward spiral that we want to live on, right? But the opposite is exactly true. The more we reject him, the harder he is to see. And the harder he is to see, the harder he is to love. And the further and further down the downward spiral we go. And perhaps that's what's going on with Israel in Paul's day. The rest were hardened. Those who were chosen obtained it, but the rest were hardened. They didn't want to hear about the gift of God's righteousness through Jesus Christ. They didn't want to hear about it, and so God stopped their ears. They didn't want to see salvation by grace alone through faith alone in christ alone so god shut their eyes so they could not see it anymore so whether you disagree or agree that this hardening is a judicial hardening that is it is in response to their rejection of the gospel it makes for some pretty timely application for us one scholar says it this way what paul says here about hardening should be a sobering truth to jews and gentiles for the principle is universal. If anyone hears the truth and does not respond to it, the time can come in which he or she is incapable of responding. Listen to the practical application. As the pastor preaches week after week to a congregation, he senses that over the years there are some who are dead to the word of God. And that's a terrifying thing. And this is a warning for all of us never to hear the word of God without responding. This, this text hits home. Can that happen? To, can the thing that happened to Israel happen to us? Yes. 
especially those of us who are here all the time. We can become so fixated on pursuing a right standing before God by our own self-righteousness that we not only neglect the gospel of salvation by grace through faith, we come to resent it. And I'll tell you one of the telltale signs of this is when you see a hardened sinner come to faith in Christ and have their life radically transformed. There are some people who have been in church a long time and say, I don't buy it. I don't trust it. I don't think that you can go as far into the darkness as this guy went and then just come out of it just like that. I don't trust it. If you find yourself saying that about people you see whose lives are changed, you're in a dangerous position. A dangerous position to think that the grace of God is not enough to rescue someone out of the darkness and bring them into the light. We need to check ourselves here in the church today that we're not making the exact same mistake that Israel made. So Paul says, he says, uh, where are we at? What Israel is seeking, it has not obtained, but those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. And now he's going to defend that statement with Scripture. He says, just as it is written. He's going to defend this idea with Old Testament Scripture. What he is saying is rooted in and consistent with the Old Testament. And then he says this, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not and ears to hear not, down to this very day. That quotation is a combination of a passage in Deuteronomy chapter 29 and Isaiah chapter 29. And we could, we could talk about the nuances of it, but I want to draw your attention to one small part of it. Actually, two small parts of it. One, he says, God gave this to them. The rest were hardened. God gave them eyes to see not, ears to hear not. God did this. Second thing I want you to see is the very last phrase when it says, down to this very day. Down to this very day. I don't think that just applies to Paul's day in the first century. I think that applies to this day. This kind of thing is happening down to this very day. There is modern day application for this text. Don't think that the stuff that we read about when we read about things in the scripture are way back when. The word of God is timeless and it is timely and it is for us even today even to this very day. And then he quotes from Psalm 69. Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and their backs bent forever. I want to draw your attention to one main part of this text, and it's about that table. He says, let their table become a snare to them and a trap. What do you think about when you think about your table? Is it a snare and an eating Excellent observation. And when you eat, are you all nervous and scared? No, I hear stories sometimes about large families. Uh, this doesn't happen at our house, but, but kids who like guard their, guard their food. Like you put the plate in front of them and they put their arm around it immediately and start eating like this so that no one, I'm glad my kids don't do that. I think of you that my kids don't have to do that, that there's plenty to go around uh, at our table. But when I sit at my table with my family, I feel pretty secure, right? I feel pretty com comfortable, pretty confident. But Paul is saying here, he's using this text to say that the very thing that has made them so confident and so comfortable has become a trap for them. Listen to the way one preacher says it. He says, let their table become a snare. means that their blessings turn into burdens and judgment. Have Israel, has Israel done that? Let the blessings that God gave them turn into burdens and judgments? Absolutely. This is what happened to Israel. Their spiritual blessings should have led them to Christ, but instead they became a snare that kept them from Christ. 
their very religious practices and observances became substitutes for the real experience of salvation. And then he says this, sad to say this same mistake is made today when people depend on religious rituals and practices instead of trusting in Christ who is pictured in all these activities. If you're trusting in your baptism for your salvation, you're not trusting in Christ. Like if you're, if you're trusting in the fact that you've been through that water to get you to heaven, you've missed the whole point. The whole point is to show a picture of Christ and what he has done for us, right? And, and maybe, maybe you're depending on the Lord's Supper. Maybe you're saying, I take the bread and I take the cup on a regular basis. And so because I take the bread and because I take the cup, I'm going to heaven. If, that, if you're trusting in the table to save you, you missed the whole point. The whole point of the table is to point you to Jesus who has done these things for you, right? To think about his body and the incarnation and to think about his blood and his sacrifice for you. If you're depending on the table, you're missing the whole point. It's not about the table. It's not about the water. It's only about Jesus. He, he is where our hope is found. In him and him alone, our hope is found. And we've got to remember that. And especially those of us in the church, we can come to depend on our attendance and our giving and our service and our participation and forget that we've got to depend on Jesus and Jesus alone for our salvation. So here's the application. Number one, I'm going to assume that since you are here today, you're concerned about a right standing before God. Like I'm going to assume that because you're here today, you've got some inkling of the final day of judgment. And if you don't, if it's not the case, if you're here today because someone dragged you in here, if you're here today to see what all those crazy Christians do on a Sunday morning, if you're here today to cause trouble, if you're here today because your girlfriend, or your boyfriend, or your husband, or your wife, or your children made you come today, and all you care about is the desires of this world. I want to say this to you. My prayer is that God will bring overwhelming conviction of sin to you in the next few moments. That you'll come to see not only the fleeting nature and the emptiness of this world and all it has to offer, but also that you will come to see that you are standing currently under the just, righteous wrath of God. Because of your sin nothing changes, you'll spend eternity in torment because of your sin. And if God were to teach you that today, it would be the most gracious thing he could do. If God were to show you today that you are a wretched sinner who deserves his wrath, who deserves to go to hell, if he were to teach you that today, that this world is empty and you have no hope, if he were to teach you that today, it would be the most gracious thing that has happened to you in a long time. Because until you are broken, you cannot see your need for a Savior. But for those of you who are here today and you are concerned about a right standing before God, my question for you is how are you seeking to obtain that right standing? Like if you're looking to the day when you stand before God in judgment and you want to have a right standing before him on that day, the question is how are you seeking it? Are you first trusting in yourself? and your works, and your righteousness, and your deeds, and your performance. When we tend to think about this idea that the rest were hardened, we tend to immediately go to people who are uh, antagonistic, and bitter, and outspoken, people who will laugh at Christians, people who will say, this is nonsense and foolishness. When we think about people who are hardened, that's typically the caricature that comes to mind. 
but it's probably not the most accurate picture of a person who is hardened. It's certainly not the picture of a Jewish person in the first century who was hardened. Listen to the words of another preacher. He says, we must remember that hardening does not necessarily mean bitterness, wrath, and hostility toward Christianity per se. It does not necessarily mean harshness. A hardened person is someone who is completely obtuse to the gospel of free justification and adoption. A person can be trying so desperately hard to please and serve God that he or she comes to vigorously resist the idea of grace. Very sincere religious people, whether Jews or Hindus or Muslims, and I would add, or Baptists, for example, misguidedly reject the gospel because it seems to weaken the need for moral effort. Right standing with God is seriously, earnestly sought, but at the same time, his loving offer of that standing is being rejected. I want to plead with you today, don't find yourself in the position of Israel, earnestly seeking after a right standing before God by works of the law and not obtaining it. Because I can promise you, no one will be justified before God by works of the law. And don't think that you're immune to this if you're in the church. You're probably most susceptible to this if you're in the church. To think, I'm doing enough to get to heaven. You could not possibly do enough to get to heaven. Even the good things you do would disqualify you from that. They're filthy rags before the Lord. Don't make the same mistake that Israel was making. Are you trusting in yourself, your works, and your deeds, and your performance, or are you resting your whole weight on Jesus? This is the only way to salvation. This is the only way to a right standing before God. You trust in Jesus, Jesus who lived the perfect life. Jesus, the spotless Lamb of God. Don't you remember John the Baptist says that? He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Paul talks about the one who knew no sin. I was reading uh, last week in the Gospels, and we got to the portion of it where um, Pilate is dealing with the people. And repeatedly, these leaders take Jesus in front of the people and they say, I find no fault in him. I find no fault in him. He hasn't done anything deserving of death. Let me punish him and let him go. You remember this? Even the, even the pagan rulers recognize the flawlessness of Jesus. Jesus is the one who lived the perfect life. He was tempted in every way, even as we are, and yet without sin. And not only did he live the perfect life, he died the substitutionary death. One of my favorite passages says, All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Why did Jesus die on the cross? Because he was a criminal? Because he was a sinner? No, because he was a substitute. Why did Jesus die on the cross? Because I deserve to die on the cross. Why did Jesus die on the cross? Because he was taking my place, your place. Paul says he made him who knew no sin to be sin, to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The one who knew no sin becomes sin on our behalf. Not only did he live a perfect life, not only did he die a substitutionary death, but he rose again, right? The victor over death and sin and hell. And the one who promises, promises to rescue us, to save us, to justify us, to reconcile us, to forgive us, to cleanse us, to adopt us by grace as an undeserved gift. He doesn't say, do all of these things, keep all of these rules, and then I'll give you what you deserve. He says, no, I'll give you what you don't deserve as a gift out of love that you receive by faith. We sang a little while ago, all our hope is in you. All our hope is in you. 
all our hope is in you. Is that where you're living today? All our hope in him? Or are you keeping a little bit of hope in yourself that you're doing enough to earn your way to heaven, to right standing before God? He's saying, all our hope is in you. All our hope is in you. All glory to you, God. That's the way it works. All our hope is in him, and therefore he gets all of the glory for our salvation. If some of our hope was in ourselves, we would get some of the glory for it, right? But he has constructed it in a way that he gets all the glory. Hear me clearly. There is only one way to find a right standing with God. There is only one way to obtain a right standing with God, and it's through faith in Jesus Christ. And it is based on grace, not works. It is based on a gift, not a merit. So where are you at today? You trusting in yourself? Or are you resting your whole weight upon Jesus, his work, his merit, his righteousness, his grace? Let's stand together and pray. God, help us in these moments to examine our hearts. God, graciously show us how we're pursuing a right standing with you. God, if we are making the mistake that Israel made where we diligently pursue a right standing with you in the wrong way, if we are even partially depending on our goodness and our righteousness and our merit to find a right standing with you, God, I pray that you rebuke us, that you convict us, that you break us over that. God, I pray that you would bring us to a place all of us to a place where we are completely resting our entire weight on Jesus for our salvation, on his mercy, on his work, on his death for our sins and burial and resurrection, that we would stand on grace, on grace alone for our hope. side.